We are welcoming all of you this morning and all of our KFU listening audience as we study the lessons for next Sunday. So today we set up more chairs because the Early Childhood Center is going to sing at 1045. We're expecting more. But you're very predictable. You just move farther back, farther away. So, uh, but we're glad to have all of you. Okay, we want to look at the lessons, and the first lesson is Deuteronomy 18. Let's read through that. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded to him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. All right, Moses is kind of in his last days as uh, on this earth before the children of Israel go into the promised land, and he's reviewing uh, what the people need to know. Now, what's very important for this passage is the context of the verses right before this passage, from Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 14. Let me share those with you. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Then comes our passage. So the context here is so important because God is saying, who are you going to listen to? When you enter the promised land, all the people there listen to fortune tellers and sorcerers and interpret omens, etc., etc. But God then says, you listen to me, and I will speak to you through the prophets. Now, this passage that we just read in uh, chapter 18 seems, and we could make the case, to point to Jesus, and it does. But actually, it's a pointing to all the prophets that God will send. And uh, not just Jesus, but Jesus is included. The prophets that he sent were warned to speak only what God told them and not any other word. 
we see this in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is told to foretell of the destruction and punishment of God upon Jerusalem and Judea. But there are also prophets and their mention that are telling the people everything's fine. Don't worry about it. In the book of Jeremiah, those prophets are condemned because they're not speaking the word of God. A prophet that does not speak the word of God is not a prophet like is being, like being described here. You see, the only time they had heard the voice of God, all these people, was at Mount Sinai. When the fire and the thunder and the lightning and the clouds covered that mountain, and God had spoken to Moses, well, it was, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. The people were, were scared to death at what they saw on top of that mountain. And that's what's referred to here. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The people didn't want to hear it anymore. It was too scary. So, Moses is telling them, he's going to raise up a prophet like me. Flesh and blood from among your brothers. Okay? Now, certainly that applies, as I said, to the other prophets, but particularly to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to become our brother. He's going to be true man. He's going to be the voice of God that people are able to hear. People are able to hear. The mighty voice of God when we are still in our sin is more than we can bear. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to be in his presence. We don't want to hear the verdict. But under Jesus Christ, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that changes. And when did it change? When Jesus Christ came and spoke to us as the Word made flesh. And he didn't come in all the majesty and thunder and lightning that God did on Mount Sinai. That didn't happen. He's born in a stable. He was a baby. And as Luther says, nobody's afraid of a baby. So we could speak, he could speak to us, and we could listen. So, he's going to give them prophets. Of course, they will reject them. But ultimately, this is saying he's going to give us a prophet like no other, his own son. Now, this passage is quoted quite a bit in the New Testament, or it's alluded to. Listen to what Philip says to Nathaniel when he finds him. We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, Deuteronomy is 15 is where Moses spoke of a prophet. He's alluding to what Moses said. And please don't be deceived by the term law. So many times we think of the, 
the law of God is being contained in Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, which is translated law. It is not just law. It's the whole word of God, which includes the gospel. So don't think that that's so narrow that it's just the law. It's law and gospel. In John 8, Jesus may allude to this when he said, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Okay? This too may be an allusion to Deuteronomy 18. Another, and this one's from Peter. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's the apostle Peter, the day of his speech at Pentecost. So he was pointing them to what Moses said that you better listen to this Jesus. And finally, in Acts 7, 37, Stephen, when he's giving his sermon, says, this is, the Mo this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So you see, he's, this verse is probably being referred to by Philip, Jesus, Peter, and Stephen. So it's quoted, alluded to quite a bit in the New Testament, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, uh, this passage that God inspired Moses to uh, tell the people, to promise another prophet. All right. Any questions or thoughts about that? Yes. This, that too could be an allusion to what Moses said, that the prophet that, uh, and that's John the Baptist speaking there. Uh, so, there's, this is an important passage in the Old Testament that points forward to uh, God always sharing his word with the people and especially through his own son. Uh, because it is the word of God that will change hearts and that will bring people to faith. So it is critical that God's word, and if God's word is so powerful and majestic that nobody wants to hear it, because it scares them, it's not going to save souls. So God sent his own son, prophet, people like us to speak without the majesty and without the glory and without the, all the trappings so that people could hear the word. So they wouldn't have to cut through all that. So the word would be spoken to them. Okay? Other things? All right. Let's move on. Now, this is very different. This lesson is very, very different. Um, and we'll talk about the social stratus of the day. Now, concerning food offered to idols. Let's, uh, let's try to put ourselves into the people's position then. In Corinth. At that time, any meat that you would buy from the market, from anywhere else, had most likely been offered to an idol. 
all meat had most likely been offered to an idol. At some point, it had been done. Now he goes on. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now that's kind of the preamble for this. He's going to discuss the whole matter of meat offered to idols because it is so prevalent in Corinth. But he starts out with the spiritual condition of those within the congregation at Corinth. Now certainly they had attained a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge through the Apostle Paul being there and teaching. And they knew a lot of things. But the question is, the thing that Paul is raising here is, are you using that knowledge and understanding with love? With love. Or is the knowledge and understanding you have hurting others. So, you know more than your kids, supposedly. <laughs> Not about computers, but you know more than your kids, but you have to watch how you explain it to them. Uh, I could stand up here and read you this text in Greek and explain the Greek words, but it wouldn't help you in a lot of ways. And in some passages, it might hurt you. You'd question, what, what in the world? It's how you use knowledge and understanding that counts. Now, that's what Paul is saying, and that's what he's going to apply to food, meat offered to idols. Notice verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It begins with God. It doesn't begin with you or your knowledge. It begins with God. God knows you because he came after you. He knew you before you knew him. And because he knew you, you have the grace of God. Therefore, you can love God. So he begins to lay the theological case. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no, one, no God but one. That's going all the way back to what's called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what that is referring to. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things. <coughs> and through whom we exist. All right, so that's the theological case. 
here we are, the people of God. We're Christians. And we know that these idols mean nothing. Are nothing. Don't exist. Made out of wood or stone. We don't owe them anything. Let alone worship. They are nothing. So even though this food has been offered to idols, so what? They're nothing. They're nothing. All right? Now, that's the theological basis of the knowledge. Of the knowledge. But that doesn't deal with the heart. That's pure knowledge. We know that. There it is. They don't really exist. All right. Now, the practical application. However, not all possess this knowledge. But through, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. All right. Everybody in Corinth in this Christian congregation, except babies that had been baptized, they had all worshipped idols before Paul got there. That's what they did. They were all idol worshippers. And they all offered food offered to an idol. That was their life. That was their lifestyle. So Paul comes along and preaches the gospel. And they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And suddenly they know that the idols they used to worship weren't anything. Nothing. So... Their friends, who still worship idols and still eat meat regularly offered to idols at the temple, invite them to come. You see, the social structure was as such that the place where you go to socialize is at the back room at the temple. That's where the parties are. So you want to associate with your old friends. You know that an idol's nothing, so you figure, I can go. So you go and party with your friends, and it doesn't bother your conscience at all. But, there's always a but somewhere, okay. but some of your fellow Christians have a lot of trouble with that. How can this person who says they're a Christian go and socialize in a temple and eat meat offered to idols. And it bothers their conscience. It bothers their conscience. Now, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Do you have the right to eat meat offered to idols. Yes. That's what Paul is saying. Yes. But not 
if it's going to be a stumbling block to your fellow Christian. Not if it's going to be a stumbling block to your fellow Christian. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols, okay? If you're using your knowledge without love, and some of your fellow Christians see you doing this, what if they say, well, I guess it's okay, and they go do it too, and they feel terrible. They feel guilty about it, very guilty about it, then that's not exercising knowledge in love. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Exercise your freedom under the gospel. Exercise your knowledge with love with love. So we can we think of things today that parallel meat offered to idols? The one that comes immediately to mind is the use of alcohol. That, that's the one that kind of comes to mind. Because we're we're doing something that is certainly right and certainly all right to do. But how does it make the recovering alcoholic feel? Or how does it make a family that was raised in the home tragically of an alcoholic as they're trying to deal with this the rest of their lives, how does that make them feel? Could it bother them? Or could it tempt them to the point they do it again? They violate their own conscience and began, began, uh, begin drinking again. That's probably the closest we've got to something today that could be, under certain circumstances, a problem for others. A problem for others. That's just one example, okay? That's just one example. But what Paul's main point is, you can't Use your Christian freedom and knowledge in such a way without love that it's going to hurt another person. That's the bottom line. And you can apply that principle to anything. To use superior knowledge or knowledge without love is a problem. Now, we're in 1 Corinthians. What's he going to talk about? in 1 Corinthians 13. There's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So he's building towards that, okay? He's building towards that, all right? So this passage, this is part of a, uh, uh, the reading here, 
the epistle, it doesn't necessarily match the Old Testament and the gospel real well. Uh, but it's an important principle about violation of conscience and knowledge and love. All right, thoughts about that one. All right, let's go to the third lesson. This is out of Mark 1, where in the Markham year, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. <clears throat> what does it mean that Jesus taught as one having authority? Now, scholars have debated that for a long time, and they've always drawn the analogy, you know, when you hear a speaker, you can tell if they know their subject or not. You can know if they're just blowing smoke or if they know what they're talking about. Well, that's part of it. But it probably goes farther, that even his presence disturbed them. Have you ever heard someone speak and his words are so pointed and so accurate about you? that it scares you, that it uh, indicts you. You know there's absolutely no escape. You know that what is being said is exactly true, and there is no excuse or getting around it. In other words, if Jesus were here, and you knew it was Jesus, and he was talking to you about your life, and how it is out of keeping with his will, would you be disturbed? That's what it's talking about. In other words, his word is such a word, you can't ignore it. You can reject it, but only with difficulty, because you know it was true. It is speaking a word that is so true and so authoritative and so right that there is no avoiding it. And even if you reject it, it will play on your mind for some time. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. 
much greater than just knowing what you're talking about, but having a word that has literally eternal authority. Can't escape. That may be a better description of speaking as one who had authority. In other words, he grabbed everybody there. He had them in their hand, in his hand. And he either believed it or you had to reject it because if you did believe it, you'd have to do what he said. So he had them. Now, several important things here. The demon knew who he was. Stupid people didn't, but the demons knew. Okay. Isaiah says the ox and the ass in the stable knew who he was. People didn't. But the demon knew who he was. Now, there is a difference in the way demons address Jesus. Uh, people tend to address him as Lord or Son of David. But those are titles for the Messiah. The demons tend to give him exalted titles. Here it's the Holy One of God. They know they're outmatched, okay? So he speaks as one as authority. He's got the, the demons. Uh, they know who he is. The people are grabbed by his word, okay? And they wonder if he has come to destroy them. Okay, the... Uh, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Absolute control. You're not speaking anymore. We're done here. Be silent and come out of him. Absolute power by the word. We talked about how important the word was in lesson number one. A prophet Prophets would speak the word. And here, what silences and casts out the demon? The word. The word of Christ. Okay? The word of Christ. So it's, it's picking up on what Deuteronomy 18 said. Um, now, all right, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is, uh, Mark records this early in his ministry uh, as one of his first miracles uh, to show, to reflect who he is and what he does. Okay? Now, the only ones, when it says here in verse 21, for they went to Capernaum, that's probably, according to Mark, James, John, Peter, and Andrew. That's who are with him at this point. Okay? So it's probably four of the ultimate disciples, and they see this. Uh, the other thing that you have to take into consideration is it was on a Sabbath. It was on a Sabbath. Now, you weren't supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And those that were in authority would consider healing an act that shouldn't be done on Sabbath. Well, ultimately, Jesus shows how ridiculous that is. Okay. 
How ridiculous that is. So he does it not only on a Sabbath, but he does it by nothing but his word. Nothing more. He just speaks. And it's done. So again, the thing that's being pointed out here is the authority. The people observe that he speaks as one with authority. Yes, he does, even to the demons, and they must obey him. So Mark is establishing beyond a doubt, this is Jesus Christ, and by his word, he has all power. He is the Messiah. He can heal. And his healing miracles are <clears throat> to show what the kingdom of God will be like when it comes fully. No sickness, no death, no demon possession, none of that stuff. None of it. That will not exist in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes, he not only teaches the people, and this is the definition of a prophet, by the way, he teaches the people, and his word is validated by the miracles he performs. So he talks about the coming kingdom of God, but by his miracles, he shows that that's exactly what's going to happen. That there is going to come a time when God is going to bring an end to all sickness, death, and demon possession. And all other things that sin have brought, has brought. He's going to do away with them. How? By his word. By his work. So with that powerful a word, you find comfort when Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven. You find comfort in the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You find comfort in the words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Because if Jesus' word has this kind of authority, then it has that kind of authority for you in your life. So that your Bible reading every day should not just be a Exercise. Let the word grab you. Let his authority grab you. Because that's when he's going to work in your heart like never before. Let it grab you. Not same old, same old. Let it grab you. And don't say, well, I know that. You say that, just remember this verse. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That's what Jesus said through the Apostle Paul. Let it grab you. Set aside all the cares of the world and just be quiet and listen. That's hard to do, you know. That's hard to do. I got 10 minutes for a devotion. Let's get this done. Okay? No, it can't be that way. And we all fight that. Pastors, too. Okay? But let it rip. All right, questions, comments about this one?
This is the one I'm going to preach on next week. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's probably not the man. It's the unclean spirit and his host, those that are like him. Everybody. Uh, you come to destroy us. Jane? Oh, yeah. Right. I think they did because it says, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching. So they heard him teach with authority. So we're, we're pretty positive they heard these words. They heard these words. Yeah, it wasn't just a... Uh, private conversation. Now, th now, there were a couple of times Jesus took people off privately, mm -hmm. but not here. He's in the middle of the synagogue. Nancy? They would have. Yeah, they would have. I think they heard him also. Yes. Well, well, let me ask you this. Are you ever tempted by Satan to think thoughts you shouldn't during church? Like, get this over with, you know? Some of the ho most horrible thoughts you will ever have are in church. On the way to church or on the way home. It's where the biggest family fights are, in the car on the way home from church. Satan is always active, okay? Satan is always active. And why this man came that day, I would say that's the hand of God. That's the hand of God. That, uh, uh, that Jesus would then heal him on that day. Well, yeah, it's not the same thing. But sometimes those thoughts come from your own heart, and sometimes those thoughts are planted by the evil one. By the evil one. Yes, Paul. The most authoritative verse, uh, <clears throat> voice in that service, as far as I'm concerned this morning, was when little Lily Claus read the Old Testament lesson. The humble, the unassuming, proclaims the word. Every word right, no malice or ill intent, I just get to read the Bible. As good as it gets. Yes. Wait a minute. Linda, pastors don't say to people that are troubled and are doing weird things, I think you got a demon. It's kind of putting them off, you know? Kind of bothers people when you tell them they're demon-possessed. They don't like that very They're probably not coming back. Okay? We can't say that. We can't say that. Certainly there are times you might suspect it. But all we can do is pray for the person that the Holy Spirit will work in them and overcome this. But we don't, I don't try to discern if somebody's got a demon. Okay. I don't go there. I don't go there. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we teach always to the kids when we go through the second commandment. Do not be messing with that stuff. Okay? Horoscopes, I know you think they're harmless. Leave them alone. 
Okay? Leave them alone. Because you plant the thought in your mind. And it may not, it's not going to be the thought of God for the day. If you're going to plant a thought in your mind for the day, let it be the word of God, not the horoscope. Okay? But Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff, you know, leave it alone. Leave it alone. You're asking for it. All right, anything else? I guess it's time. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.